Okay, now I'm on. Um, I'm making an announcement here, so you don't need to start the tape yet. Um, but I was asked to make it known, and we can rejoice with those who rejoice, uh, that we to look into the Word of God today. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that as we bow before you today and as we acknowledge, Lord, that you are Lord, your King, your Master over all, Uh, We do so, Lord, acknowledging that it's very subtle that we not live in light of that reality, that we must confess that it's true that our hearts often yearn and have the desire that we want to be God. We'd like to be master. We'd like to be in control of things. And so, Lord, we come to you as people who need to hear your truth, to have our hearts exposed to be reminded of how Christ is indeed King and Lord and Master over all. And we pray that your word today would help, Lord, us to understand values that are far different from the values of this world, and therefore that we would give you glory and praise as we try to line our lives up with the priorities of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Born many years ago into a royal family, his ambition in life was to live the life of one of the characters from Greek mythology. He wanted to be a Greek hero. He was given opportunities to study with one of the greatest minds of his day. He studied under the tutelage of Aristotle, and at the age of 20, His father, who was a king, died slash was murdered, not sure. Nonetheless, at age 20, he inherited his father's kingdom. And he, at that time, went forth into battle again and again, leading his armies in further pursuits, taking him eastward as he conquered the Persian Empire, including Syria and Egypt and Iran and Afghanistan, even into the country of today's country of India. As he marched his armies tens of thousands of miles by foot, further and further expanding his enlarged kingdom. Everywhere he went, in all the lands that he conquered, he would found new cities, including 70, 70 cities that he founded and He named them after himself because this was a person who didn't just have great ambitions to be a wonderful person. He had great ambitions to be the greatest. And we actually read that one of the quotes and statements I came across that he said is, I would rather live a short life than a long one in obscurity. So much his pursuit for greatness was such a passion is that he almost, and did, according to certain authors, took the steps toward deification of himself, that he wanted people to think and believe that he was God. However, his life and his kingdom didn't last long because at the age of 33, he died. And soon his kingdom was broken into three or four uh, different separate kingdoms and It was dismantled as quickly as he uh, built it together in those short 13 years. His name, Alexander 
the Great. Alexander the Great One died at the age of 33 with a kingdom that fell apart. This morning we're thinking about ambition. Those who sought for and longed for greatness. Everybody is doing it. The question is, what kind of greatness are you longing for? Is it wrong to have desires for greatness? I want us to look now at this text before us this morning as we continue in a message that we had started two weeks ago. If you haven't, didn't listen to that particular message, I urge you to be, uh, get a hold of that recording because it will help you understand what we've done with this text. I want us to begin looking at chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 20 of the 20th chapter. We're just going to get the context and the flow of what was happening here. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of Jesus, and he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right, one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant at the two brothers. And Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now as we return to this text, and as we observe once again what is happening here, we'll notice in Matthew 20 that we have the followers of Jesus, mad at each other and frustrated at each other because two of them, who are relatives of Jesus, had sought and requested the seats of greatest honor and prestige in the kingdom that Jesus promised uh, to them that he would set up at some point in the future. And so here Jesus now is taking an opportunity to address the fact that among his followers is this longing for greatness that exists. And that's why they're upset, and that's why the two have asked the, made the request of him. And he is now going to contrast the values of the world and how the world strives after greatness with those who, who are, again, in a worldly sense, looking for greatness in the eyes of their fellow men. And Jesus is going to contrast with that with those who seek greatness, but in a whole different uh, value system. They're going to seek greatness based on a radically different approach. They're going to look for greatness in the eyes of God, according to his kingdom, his values, and his standards. And so notice this contrast, as our main points show, we're going to look at two different approaches, greatness according to the kingdom of this world. Jesus utilized a common principle when he taught his disciples here in this text, beginning in verse 25. 
he started with what was known, and he then introduced something that's completely new and different from that, and said, you know this, but I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about this. I saw an interesting example of that principle not long ago in a book, one of these weight loss books. I don't read these things very much. There's not a lot of reading in this one. This is mostly pictures. It's called Eat This, Not That. And it's all about fast food restaurants. And when you go there, be sure to eat this and don't eat that. Giving you specific examples so things you'll know and become familiar with and become a better person who reduces your calorie intake and eats a little more healthily. Like I said, I don't read those books. But anyway, that's the principle, and that's what Jesus was trying to do here. He's trying to take what they're familiar with and seen modeled before them in terms of pursuit of greatness, and he's saying, I want you to not go that direction. I want you to go in a whole new different direction when it comes to the pursuit of greatness. Now, there were many Roman rulers, rulers who sat upon thrones, and that's what the disciples had in their minds because Jesus had said to them the 12 of those disciples were going to sit on thrones someday in his kingdom, and he's sitting on the throne. And here they know of Roman rulers that have sat on thrones, and they have ruled, and their greatness has been characterized by absolute power, by great expressions of prestige among their fellow Roman citizens. And in Jesus' day, these quote-unquote great people were those who exerted this kind of dictatorial control over the people around them. And Jesus' disciples were well aware of the emperor who resided in Rome. Everybody knew who Caesar was, the kinds of powers that he had, executive power over his subjects. It is Caesar who had put forth the requirement that his subjects were to call him Lord. And he demanded that the citizens of his empire worship him. That's the kind of greatness that he was pursuing and had uh, uh, attained to. Matthew then provided other examples to remind us of the kind of rulers that they faced, the kind of people who enjoyed greatness in that culture, the tyrannical rulers whose greatness would exert their control over the Jewish subjects. Think back to chapter 2 in Matthew, in which Matthew recalls the incident of Herod. Herod, who had given an edict and a command that because he learned that there was some uh, a, a number of people who had come from the east, the Magi, they are coming to try to find this king of the Jews who has been born, and he seeks to know where that is and who that is. Why? because he's intimidated by the thought that there is someone else who might usurp his power, usurp his position of greatness, some other king who's now going to cause a threat to him. And what does he do? By his expression of his greatness, he exerts the power to say, kill all of the baby boys two years of age and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem. If you know anything about Herod, he was called Herod the Great because there were a long list of other Herods, and they tried to distinguish who he was. He was a brutal, ruthless king. He, as I read back about his life, he had his wife put to death. He had three of her sons put to death. He drowned his brother-in-law. His mother-in-law was put to death after an attempted coup. And he was on and on and on and on, so he's constantly... Uh, killing and destroying anybody who perceived as a threat to him and his kingdom. 
And he sought to increase his sense of greatness among the people he ruled over by massive, expansive building programs. It is Herod who built the town of Caesarea right on the coast, a fancy, uh, very extravagant uh, harbor that he constructed there. It is Herod who built the second temple. It was a massive, doubling the size of the temple complex. Even some of those stones can be found even today on the Wailing Wall. It is Herod the Great who sought to impress other people with a sense of greatness by doing great feats and exerting his control over those around him. We learn also in Matthew chapter 14 that the son of Herod, Herod Antipas, defended his reputation in the midst of all of his uh, fellow rulers and fellow uh, hotshots in the kingdom. They were all attending a great party there in order to uh, defend his reputation and his sense of greatness among those of his kingdom. He commanded and ordered that John the Baptist be executed for no reason at all other than his wife and her daughter had made the request. All of these rulers used their power to destroy people who stood in their way of their self-advancing agenda. To be great in the eyes of other people. That's what they really were longing for. They wanted other people to see them as great. They longed to have the opinions and the loyalty of others that they valued be shown to them. These are the ones who lorded it over their subjects, using tyrannical power to serve their own self-centered interests. Sadly, similar worldly values infiltrated even into the religious world. Jesus made the contrast between the Gentile world, where the, where the power uh, abuse was flagrant and so obvious. He said, even the Gentiles, look at them and how they pursue greatness. But I would suggest to you that even the Jewish leadership in the religious realm had bought into those kinds of concepts. And sadly enough, if you look ahead into chapter 23 of Matthew, it's clear that Jesus addressed this abuse of their authority and their, their striving for greatness, and they're lording it over their disciples as the Pharisees and scribes are called onto the carpet. And they are described as people who were giving instruction to other people, saying, this is what you ought to do. This is what you ought not to do. And yet they themselves would never conform to the instruction that they gave to others. In chapter 23, Jesus lays out the fact that many of them would put all these burdensome rules and regulations on all these people, these traditions that he would burden these people with and put them under their care. And what did they do? Being unconcerned about those burdens, they loved and cherished all of the places of honor that they would receive when they were invited to banquets. They would just relish the chief seats in the synagogue, sitting in the most prestigious places when they gathered for worship so that everybody would see them and notice them. And they loved to have the spiritual titles given to them so that people would speak to them with these great honor, honorable titles and respectable uh, greetings like rabbi and, and great teacher and whatever. It elevated their sense of importance so that what? So that they would feel like they're great in the eyes of other people. Greatness as measured by the world involves trying to secure various impressive titles from people. Some people do it by adding on uh, abbreviations after your name or before your name to show that you have some high impressive degrees. 
People try to look for positions of honor, the highest positions in a corporation or other parts in which they can attain to some sort of prestigious uh, uh, positions. They try to acquire an abundance of wealth because money and having lots of money enables you to therefore pretty much do whatever you want. You can buy off people. You can, you can pay somebody else to do something for you. You can pretty much exert control over your situation and accomplish your plans and your agenda. And some people exert control in our society today with the same sense, just like many of these Gentile rulers do, with manipulation, with an iron fist of intimidation. And even in a violent way, people will try to exert their control and their, their need for greatness. Other people have a whole different approach. They come at it from a whole different angle. And they will exert their influence and control by charm and charisma, winning people over so they, they, they're like a Pied Piper where people will follow them wherever they lead them. And Jesus wanted to make it very clear to his disciples, to the ones who were going to lead his church after he left, they were going to be in charge. And he warned them not to adopt that pattern of leadership, the pattern that the Gentiles, longing for greatness, pursued. And so Peter picked up on that. He learned the lesson, and this is what he wrote in his fifth chapter of his first epistle. Peter writes the instructions for the elders at the churches of Macedonia. He says this, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight voluntarily with eagerness. Watch this. Not lording it over them. Not lording it over those who are allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Peter was listening on that day. He picked up. There was an important lesson to learn here. And when a church is governed by people who hold to worldly values, the cause of Christ is compromised. When church leaders lord it over their members, when they put rules upon them and try to control people's lives that go beyond the pages of Scripture in ways that are not honoring to Christ but are merely attempts to try to gain certain measure of loyalty and conformity to their standards, those churches, my friend, they're, they're characterized by conflict, by legalism, and by compromise. And the same is true in the realm of a family. If a husband claims to be a follower of Christ, but his approach in dealing with his wife is to do so with an iron fist, that is, he lords it over his wife by exhibiting this excessive control over his spouse, by insisting that his selfish comforts be addressed first and foremost, and that everything is about him and serving his interests and his needs primarily. My friend, that person has made a mockery of the Christ he claims to follow, and he has bought in to the values of this world. I have sat in my study and listened to somebody who came years and years and years ago contemplating the idea of getting married. They were asking me to be a part of that. And as we talked further, and I said, why are you hoping to marry? He asked further questions. This guy's view of what he thought it was to be a husband was this iron fist of ruling over my wife. She must subject herself to me. 
I'm the man of the house. And I turned to that woman and I said, if I were you, I wouldn't be marrying this guy. They didn't stay here at the church long. But anyway, <clears throat> maybe she followed my advice, I hope. Also in the home, if there are parents who, again, claim to be Christ followers, but they place a great deal of emphasis on primarily the enforcement of a long list of rules, and that is their primary and almost exclusive interaction with their children, if that is the main modus of operandi, that's the way they relate to their children, I would say to you, and if they do so, merely to have a trouble-free life and to have things go in ways that eliminate difficulty and problems in their life, they are, my friends, people who have bought in to the world's sense of values. And what you have as a result of that is, if you follow the world's values, guess what you get? You get a fragmented family made up of angry, exasperated kids who want nothing to do with you when they get older. You see, Jesus sees that there's a real problem if we buy into the values of the world and somehow we bring them into the church, into the new society that Jesus is trying to build. He says, you can't do that. It's mixing oil and water. It is the selfless Christ of the cross who calls his people to adopt the values of a radically different kingdom. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. I want us to think about what does greatness mean according to the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. Point number two. Well, clearly Jesus taught that his disciples, his kingdom is not of this world, John chapter 18. And rather than pursuing greatness by way of what I call the pyramid approach, let's everybody do this for a second just to get yourself focused here. Make your little pyramid. You do that, two thumbs and your index fingers. The pyramid is, the, is the, the way of the world, the values of the world, which says that with this kind of a pyramid approach, the goal is to get yourself to the top. If you're in the top, then you have arrived, and that's the main point you want to be at, because then you can have your way and have your agenda fulfilled. The problem is, of course, that people who live that way at the top of the pyramid is that they are now saying, it's my plans, it's my preferences, it's my desires that are the agenda that I really live for, and I am trying to win the approval of so many people around me, I'm trying to win the, uh, the aberration of people around me, and I, my goal is to get to the point where that is achieved in the way that I feel best works for me. Jesus says, you need to abandon that approach. What I'd like you to do, he says, point number two, letter A, Jesus talked about inverting the pyramid. That's a little harder to do because you have to sort of make a pyramid upside down is the way I do it, like this. Where you turn the pyramid downward. Where other people are higher up and you're at the bottom. You say, what do you mean there? Well, look what he says here in the text. Notice that Jesus says here that we're called by Christ to pursue greatness. But the greatness is defined now as greatness in the eyes of God. Not greatness in the eyes of other people, but greatness in the eyes of God. And therefore, to do that, we assume the role of a selfless servant. And the motive no longer is the pursuit of man's praise and man's admiration, 
Now the motive is to what? Serving and ministering others for their good in order to bring glory to Christ. Look what he says there in verse 27, 26 and 27. It is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. J.C. Ryle, the great pastor at the end of the 1800s, wrote these words. True greatness consists not in receiving, but giving. Not in selfish absorption of good things, but in imparting good to others. Not in being served, but in serving. Not in sitting still, but being ministered and being ministered to, but in going about and ministering to others. What a radical change the values of the kingdom really are. Now, I say it's radical because if you look at what Jesus says here, it really should shock us, and it really doesn't. And part of that is because of our culture. Part of that is because we don't understand the words used here, and I'm going to try to explain the words a little more carefully uh, to you because notice what I read there in verses 26 and 27, how Jesus indicates a radical reversal. And so in order to understand the radical reversal, look at the terms he's using here. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your, here's the first one, servant. Diakonos is the Greek word. Servant is a good translation. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. It's a good translation. It's a correct translation of the word doulos in Greek. The first term servant, letter B, is from a word group from which we get the English term deacon, diakonos. That's where we get the idea of deacons. It's a secular term, and it referred to a person who did menial labor. A person who, by virtue of their work, they served and helped other people. That's what they were known to be. A diakonos, a servant, was a person who helped others with their needs and tasks. And so the early church picked up that term and realized this is the term we need to utilize when it comes to the kingdom and the values of Christ in the church because we want to apply it to those who are considered to be those who are helping others. And they applied it to even the leaders of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul asks the question as he talks about the great leaders, many of whom the church, people in the church had said, well, I'm a follower of this one. I'm a follower of that one. Well, I'm a follower of this one. And they pick their big leaders and they say, well, this is my leader. And they're all fragmented in these little groups, these divisions. And so Paul's saying, look at this. Chapter 3, verse 5, 1 Corinthians. Who then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Here's the word, diakonos, servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. They're just servants. <laughs> They're people who are helpers. That's what they are. Servants don't try to elevate themselves in the eyes of other people in order to advance their own self-focused agenda. They devote their energies to helping meet the needs of other people. So, Paul wouldn't be surprised. He refers to people he knows who are helping in the kingdom, in the local churches. He sent greetings to the believers there in Rome. In chapter 16, what does he do? He concludes in chapter 16, verse 1, and offers kudos to a woman named Phoebe. 
And he says of her, because of her practical assistance that she rendered to other believers, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea. Here's a servant. I commend her to you. Look at her life. She's serving and helping others in the kingdom. It's Paul who encouraged Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, to be a good servant of Christ Jesus in his labors among the church there in Ephesus. It was Paul who described Epaphras, whom he sent as an envoy to the believers there at Colossae. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, that Epaphras is a faithful servant of Christ on my behalf. Now here's a, here's a quote I want you to notice here. Servants are those who are willing to sacrifice for the benefit of others. Servants and sacrifice go hand in hand. A person who's a servant is used to sacrificing. That's what they do. They're not primarily interested in titles of honor. They're not primarily interested in being seated at the the seats of great privilege and prestige. They're willing to humbly be inconvenienced and suffer for other people. And true servants are selfless ministers who sacrifice their time, they sacrifice their resources, and they sacrifice their energies to help other people. Are there any servants among us? Anybody pursuing greatness as a servant? Jesus is saying, that's the kind of greatness that you ought to be pursuing in the kingdom. And by the way, my friend, every home has many opportunities for people to be servants in helping, accomplishing everyday tasks uh, in wherever you live or among whomever you live or wherever you work. But that's not enough. Just the idea of concept of servants. But there's another term that's even more radical, even more amazing, even more uh, completely at odds with the approach of the world. And that's the term Jesus used in number two, verse uh, letter C, slave, doulos. A servant, on the one hand, was free to go about and do as he pleased. He was a free man, a free woman. She was a free woman. But a slave, a doulos, belonged to a master and could only do the things that that master required that doulos, that slave, to do. Now, I have with me this morning a brand-new book which I've been enjoying reading, very unusual cover on it, but it's really one title, uh, one, letter, one word title called Slave by John MacArthur. And he goes through and studies this word doulos throughout the New Testament And he begins to make a lot of interesting observations and bring to light the significance of the term slave as used to refer to believers in the New Testament. It's amazing. His insights help bring out the fact that many translations have never used the word slave. They they sought to avoid the term because of all the problems. We understand why, because of uh, the kinds of modern-day slavery issues that were going on. But the fact is... That is the term they used, and that's what the the first century audience would have understood. And so here's a summary of what MacArthur says slavery entailed and the kind of things would be true of a slave in the first century. And this is applied now to those who are slaves of Jesus Christ. Slavery entails a life of total self-denial, 
a humble disposition toward other people, a wholehearted devotion to the Master alone, a willingness to obey the Master's commands in everything, an eagerness to serve the Master even in His absence, and a motivation that comes from knowing that the Master is well pleased. He's alluding to how the term slave is used in the New Testament, particularly in reference to believers in relating to our Master, Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul consistently introduced himself in his correspondence to those he was writing. He introduced himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, Titus 1, Romans 1. Paul realized that he had been bought with a price. He was not his own anymore. He belonged to his Master, Jesus Christ. It is James in the first chapter of his epistle, he referred to himself as a slave of God. It is Peter and Jude and John, all in the first chapters of their epistles, refer to themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Christ is good news to those who were formerly at one time enslaved in sin, despairing, unable to escape from it, under its mastery. And Jesus Christ redeemed us, not with silver and gold, we read in Peter's epistle, but with His precious blood, He bought us. And everyone who repents of his or her sin and believes upon Christ does not belong to himself or herself anymore. They're no longer to live for themselves. But every believer has the joyous privilege of obeying and carrying out our new Master's wishes. Here's a quote in your notes by William Barclay. Listen to him explain the duty of a master. Slaves know no law but their master's word. They have no rights of their own. They are absolutely possessions of their master and they are bound to give their master unquestioning obedience. Unquestioning obedience is the role and duty of every slave of Jesus Christ. And so the way to pursue greatness in the eyes of our Master and Lord Jesus Christ is to do what? Galatians 5.13, the verse we had at the top of the order of service and what we read earlier today. It is in the serving of other people. Serve one another. That's the way we show our desire for greatness in the eyes of Christ. We cannot serve other people. We cannot render faithful service to Jesus Christ as our Master unless we're actively involved in the lives of other believers. You cannot be a slave of Jesus Christ and live unto yourself, all by yourself, and uninvolved and distanced from other believers. How then can you serve other people in the pursuit of greatness before Christ? Did you realize that before you came in here today, into this worship center, into this building, that a number of people have been serving you already? You ever give thought to that? Someone unlocked the door because the door was probably unlocked when you came in. Someone had to turn on the lights in the facility. Someone else paid the bill 
to the to the lipa on behalf of our church. Someone else turned the heat on. Someone else has printed the bulletins for us and folded them for us and put them in your boxes. Someone else has practiced the music and selected the music and, and rehearsed and tried to prepare themselves to lead us in worship. Someone else has vacuumed the hallway. Somebody else has cleaned the restrooms. Someone else has prepared a, a list of volunteers and called them and lined them up to serve in the nursery so that there will be people there watching over our little children while we're worshiping here. And there are other people who have come early and they've gone back there to help in serving in the nursery. They're serving. There are greeters who came early and welcomed you as you came in. There's someone who brought the bagels this morning and served in that way. And do you know there are other people who have served you? You don't even realize it, but there have been people who have served you during the week. They've been praying for you and interceding on your behalf, asking God to do a mighty work and even to work even through this time as we come to the Word today. There are people pursuing greatness all around us. The question is, we have to ask ourselves, where are you going to seek your greatness? Are you going to seek greatness in the eyes of other people, trying to win their respect, win their kind of admiration? Or are you going to seek greatness in the eyes of God, attempting to have your will done, pursuing the investment of your energies in such a way that you can position yourself that your kingdom will come and your will will be done the way you like things done? Or will you be pursuing greatness that says, I want to pursue greatness in the eyes of the God, the God who loved me enough to send His Son to die for me and who has bought me with His own blood. I want to pursue greatness in His eyes by serving the people around me He's called me to serve and to give Him glory and to give Him praise because I do it, not because I have to, but because I want to. Because my heart has been changed. What kind of greatness are you wishing for? You say, well, hey, you haven't gotten to verse 28 in the text. I decided to save it till next week. Because next week we're going to consider the ultimate the ultimate selfless servant and slave, Jesus Christ. He's the one who conquered sin and death and hell. He's the one who died at the age of 33. And He's the one whose kingdom continues to this day, a kingdom that continues to expand, a kingdom that is going to come in its fullness someday, and He is the person whose greatness no one will ever match because He died on that cross. What kind, of king, what kind of greatness are you pursuing? Let's keep our eyes on Christ. Let's pray.